Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. On October 16, 1965, President Kennedy learned of Soviet missile sites in Cuba. And for the next 13 days, he met with his advisors. Uh, The group is, as a collective, are called the uh, XCOM. And they had to determine the best course of action. Uh, Those of us who were alive at the time, even if we were late elementary school, uh, we remember it was a time of great tension. It is commonly uh, thought to be the closest uh, that the world came to nuclear war. My guest is Dr. Sheldon Stern. He has taught history at the collegiate level for more than a decade and then became historian at the JFK Library in Boston. He served from 1977 to 2000. He was the first non-member of XCOM to actually listen to all of the secret recordings that were made during the 13 days of the Cuban Missile Crisis. He's the author of Averting the Final Failure, John F. Kennedy and the Soviet-Cuban Missile uh, Crisis, Uh, also the Cuban Missile Crisis in American Memory, and the week the world stood still inside the Cuban Missile Crisis. Dr. Stern, it's a great pleasure to have you with me. Thanks. My pleasure. I just said you made a bit of a slip. It's 62, not 65. Did I say 65? Yeah, well, we all do things like that. Don't worry about it. I am aging. So, So, well, let me... me, uh, the, The conventional story is largely taken from Robert Kennedy's book, 13 Days, and then the that movie. That is absolutely correct. Uh, from 2000, the movie, uh, 13 Days. Oh, um, yeah. How does, we're going to go into some detail here, but in general, how does the book, how does the movie stand contrasted with the, compared and contrasted with the Kennedy tapes during the Cuban Missile Crisis? Well, it's, it's a very good question, and... Uh, uh, it's it's hard often for people to believe. They let, let me just give you a little background before I answer Please. the question. Um, 13 Days came out in 1969, which was uh, roughly a year after uh, Bobby was murdered. And uh, the, it was finished edited by Ted Sorensen. And it's always unclear where the line was between uh, Ted and Bobby. I mean, mm. who, you know what I'm saying. Sure, but anyway, sure. The book is attributed entirely to Bobby. So uh, when it came out, because of the horror of what happened to him, uh, the people who were involved, I think, reached a a conclusion, and and I don't think they really talked about it. They just sort of felt it. Uh, And I know the case in, for example, Dean Rusk. Uh, Dean Rusk was not happy with the book, but he decided that he would not... uh, uh, criticize it. He had uh, been Secretary of State. At Secretary that time. of State, right? Uh, and he decided not to criticize the book because, as he put it to his uh, oldest son, uh, Bobby can't defend himself. Yeah. yeah. So he said, "Let's leave it to historians to sort it out." And what happened then, from 1969 uh, to roughly, well, about 30 years, uh, the account, Bobby's account completely dominated the understanding of the missile crisis. Then, the tapes were declassified. 
And now, again, you mentioned that I had heard them. I heard them in 1981, 1982. I spent nearly two years listening to those tapes. It wow. was an experience of a lifetime. And it changed my life. It really did. Uh, I came to the library as someone who's, uh, whose interests were primarily in the progressive era, and uh, I was working on material for the museum that was about to open. And then one day, I, it just annoyed, what seemed like an ordinary day, um, my phone rang very early in the morning. The director said, Sheldon, can you come upstairs? I have to talk to you about something very important. So I said, sure, I'll be up in a minute. And I sat down, and then the director, Dan Fenn, said to me, we just got clearance from the State Department and the Defense Department, have have signed off on the tapes, and we can now declassify them. <laughs> we can open them to the public. <laughs> and he said, well, we've got one historian, it's your job. <laughs> and, uh, well, I had no idea when he said that to me, how important it was. Yeah. Uh, because I assumed, like everybody else, that all I'm going to do is find that 13 days was an accurate account of what happened. Yeah. Well, it didn't work out that way. <laughs> about an hour into the first meeting, uh, Bobby didn't say anything for about the first hour. And then that unforgettable voice, and he said, uh, according to the book, he, he was demanding a peaceful way out without the use of any kind of force in Cuba. And there's even a quote that was found in his papers, which Arthur Schlesinger used in his 1979 biography of Robert Kennedy. And now there, was, there he was making the remarks that I was so familiar with. The only problem is he said exactly the opposite. Wow. <laughs> exactly the opposite. I mean, you can imagine my reaction. <laughs> There was one person in the room with me when I was listening to it in what's called the vault at the Kennedy Library, uh, an archivist who worked there regularly, and I, I stopped for a second and I said, Suzanne, you can't believe this. He, sa he didn't say X, he said Y. And then I went back to listening. And it was the beginning of an amazing uh, discovery. Hmm. Uh, the standard view, and it's very important for listeners to understand, is that from 1969 to the declassification of the tapes about 30 years later, this small group of people, McNamara, Bundy, Rusk, uh, Ambassador Thompson, although he died in 72, um, and a few of the lesser-known people. But they, amazingly, they, these people lived, generally lived a very long time, yeah. into the 90s and even into the uh, 21st century. McNamara and Rusk were the last mm -hmm. to die in 2009 and 2010. These, this group totally controlled what we knew and believed about the missile crisis. And inevitably, as I said in... I'm sure all of the books, that it was an inevitably uh, shrinking group <laughs> as the nature of life and death mm -hmm. goes on. Uh, and it, it, the ultimate example for me came in 2007. Uh, there was a conference at Princeton University uh, for the 45th anniversary of the crisis, and I, uh, I was asked to speak. And one of the other speakers was Ted Sorensen. As I say, by that time, there were just two left, two participants left. Is McNamara and Sorensen? McNamara was still alive, okay. yes, but Sorensen was on the panel. 
and he was supposed to speak first. Speak first, but he uh, his driver called. He was coming from New York, and said they were stuck in traffic on the expressway. And uh, so the moderator asked me to go first. And I was about ten minutes into my remarks when the door opened and Ted came in, and he was walking on the arm of, of an aide, and it was perfectly clear that he couldn't see. Mm. Now, I knew that. I knew that Ted had had a stroke that uh, destroyed his optic nerve, and he was blind. Otherwise, he was just fine. I mean, his mind was fine. Mm-hmm. And he came and he sat down, and I continued. I, I remember I recapitulated just a little bit. And after I had a guy in about 30 or 35 minutes, and then uh, I sat down. Uh, Ted got up, and uh, he said, I mean, I don't remember his exact words, but he said essentially the following. Uh, With all due respect to Dr. Stern, I was there, and he wasn't, and he's wrong. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Well, you can imagine my (laughs) reaction. I, I just—I was so stunned. I didn't—I didn't say anything. I didn't know what to say, and I looked behind Ted, who was standing, and because the moderator was on the, his his other side, I was on his right, and the moderator was on his left. And the moderator, realizing that I was leaning behind Ted, he also did, and we, we met, you know, we made contact, and I mouthed to him, "Should, should I take him on?" Mm-hmm. And, and he said, "No. Okay. Don't, don't do it." So I said, okay, and I didn't say anything. Did Sorensen even try to engage anything you said? Uh, he, well, yes. In, no, not in that sense. He just told his story, which was very different from yeah. mine. Gotcha. Okay. And one that matched entirely what Bobby had said mm-hmm. in 13 days. Afterwards, we had a, uh, well, there's no point in going into that. But at the end, it was very interesting because uh a big crowd of people came up to ask questions. And there was a long line of people to talk to Ted and get his autograph. And not a single person asked me a question. <laughs> oh, I just no. sat there. <laughs> and you're the one who had and, listened to the tapes. Yeah, the... I mean, it's, it tells you a lot about the question of celebrity in our culture. Yeah, yeah. Ted was a celebrity. And uh, he had been there. So they took what he said. Sure. Now, now let me finally get to the real point. The real point is... And what I said that evening was that the traditional view was that the XCOM gave JFK the sober and sensible advice that he used to find out to find a way out of the crisis short of war. Mm-hmm. He followed their advice. Um, what the tapes showed couldn't have been more opposite. The tapes showed that. All of his advisors, there were a few who waffled back and forth, but basically all the big names, Bundy, McNamara, Rusk, and above all, Bobby himself, were very hawkish. Wow. To the end. Right to the end. Bobby's last words on the tape are, McNamara says to him, we're going in on Tuesday. There was a tentative decision to, to attack on Tuesday if Khrushchev did not agree to the, to, the, to the deal to swap the missiles. You know what I'm talking sure, about? Sure, sure. Yeah, okay. Uh, this was, you know, just hours before Khrushchev did agree, and so it became moot. But uh, McNamara says, if, if he doesn't, we're going in 
with uh, 500 airstrikes, and I mean, he just went through the whole list, and it was it was terrifying. And Bobby said, "Yeah, yeah, boy, I would like to take Cuba back." Wow, that's the last thing. <laughs> that he, was his, he, la- his last words on the tape. But you know, there's a consumer, a, a tremendous irony in the whole thing, of course. That Bobby was a hawk; his brother was not a hawk. Right. The real, right. the real. Real, um, what it really tells you, of course, is that first of all, Bobby's loyalty to his brother, which was profound. Mm-hmm. So, who did, who did who did his brother, who did Jack Kennedy send to ask the Brennan, the ambassador, to make this deal? Yeah. He sent his brother, even though his brother was against the deal. <laughs> <laughs> no, just, hold it there, nice and we'll pick it up. I gotta take a break right now. The encounter. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Sheldon Stern. He is the author of The Cuban Missile Crisis in American Memory. He was the first historian to listen to uh, the Kennedy tapes from those 13 days in October of 1962. And uh, the conventional the wisdom or the, the mindset, this narrative that's been most enduring uh, shows that uh, after 13 days of you know constant uh, back and forth and uh, fighting between them, the XCOM, the group that was meeting with President Kennedy, all kind of settled into the idea uh, of accepting uh, the terms uh, that had been proposed by Khrushchev. But in the most enduring myth is that Bobby Kennedy saved the peace uh, by persuading the president to accept the terms in uh, Khrushchev's uh, offer. Uh, he, but K- JFK was the one standing alone. Is that right? Absolutely true. That's. I mean, you have to you have to read the, the transcripts or listen to the tapes to, to, to get the that intensity of the conversation at times. I, you know, one of the lines that always sticks in my mind is when he said, "They were all really on his back about, no, don't do this; it'll it'll hurt NATO." And uh, we'll be responsible. And he said, well, well, the problem is everybody's courage goes when the blood starts to flow. <laughs> and then yeah. they're all going to say to us, why did you take that deal? It's better than this. Right, right, right. He said that. He wow. said that. And they they didn't budge. There were two I offers. Mean, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was saying, there were two offers from Khrushchev. Uh, I think, was it one on Friday night? Yeah, Friday night he said, uh, if you uh, promise publicly not to invade again, uh, we will take out the missiles. So they met early on Saturday morning in order to discuss that. And about 20 minutes into the meeting, uh, uh, Pierre Salinger comes in and he whispers something to Kennedy. You can't really hear it. You can hear a little bit. And then Kennedy says, oh, my God. I mean, he'll say, oh, my God. But he says... He's just changed his, his tune. Uh, he now says he will take them out if we take them out of Turkey. And that's it for the rest of the day. I mean, they met for about 10 and a half, 11 hours that day. And you really get the sense. I mean, listening to them and I was utterly exhausted. <laughs> just to listen to them. You try and imagine what it was like emotionally, physically, with these people going through this and knowing what the stakes were. 
Uh, it's it's an amazing an amazing example of uh, contingency of, of history. Yeah, it could it could have gone the other way, but it didn't. It didn't. Yeah, I mean, and it, it didn't primarily because not because of Robert Kennedy, not because of the ex-con, but because Kennedy stood up to them. Yeah. and said no, and wow. he constantly referred to his experience uh, as as a, in the navy. You know, he said he knew what it was like to be in, at war. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so did General Taylor, uh, who was the least hawkish of the military people. By the okay. way, they were they were just beyond belief. Um, Cur- Curtis LeMay was he? Curtis as, LeMay was. Is, is he as caricatured? Uh, he's, he's often caricatured. Uh, well, he was. He was. I can't help saying it, but he deserves it. I mean, (laughs) when you see the things he said to the president, I mean, he first of all he taunted him. I mean, he he said, "Oh gosh, I wish I could remember it more accurately." Uh, He said, uh, "This idea of of a negotiated peace is merely going to bring on war." I'm just paraphrasing now. Sure, going to bring on war. The only answer is invading Cuba now. And the president tries to respond. I mean, he's already made his position clear. And uh, LeMay basically says, he uses the, the, most, the most damaging metaphor of his time. Mm-hmm. He says, this is, begins to sound like Munich. Wow. Yeah. No, yeah those are not the exact words, but it was very... Yeah. I remember when I first heard that... <laughs> I mean, I, I just, you know, it was breathtaking. And I said to myself, okay, is the president going to respond? Especially said to a Kennedy, because of yes. his father. Well, because of his father yeah. and the whole business with Munich, right. Uh, exactly. I mean, I think that LeMay was deliberately taunting him and insulting him. Yeah. And I thought, I thought he would, he would respond. He didn't. He was, his self-control was amazing. Huh. Wow. He said, although he did say one thing, which is great. He said, uh, um, LeMay said, uh, you know, you're in this, and and Kennedy said, well, you know what? You are too, personally. (laughs) That's a paraphrase again, but uh, the personally is definitely there. But um, he, he didn't take the bait, and he sat there for another 20 minutes listening to every member of the Joint Chiefs say exactly the same thing, or not as personally, uh, yeah. Yeah, as you know, as uh, there's a, there's a really incredible moment when he says to General Shoup, the uh, uh, commandant of the Marine Corps, he says, uh, "You you have to understand, the Russians have these missiles on their own territory. They have enough to reach the whole United States. This is really a political crisis. It's not a, a nuclear crisis. I mean, the, the, the missiles in Cuba don't really change anything anymore." You know, except it's a shorter distance. Right, right. But, uh, but, you know, they, and he was already hinting about, you know, the missiles in Turkey, which were five minutes away from the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah. And which enraged Khrushchev. Uh, and we now know from Khrushchev's own writing and the things that have been declassified in the former Soviet Union that that was the reason he did it. He did it to protect Castro. He didn't want the U.S. to invade again. Yeah, but he had no idea that it would cause such. You know, his, his judgment was not very good. So Khrushchev thought he was protecting 
the young uh, Marxist the, revolutionary. The young Marxist, exactly. Yeah, and he kind of a romantic himself. notion. Yeah, very much so. That's a very yeah. good point. I like the way you put that. Uh, he, he says that very much so. You know, uh, I'm the head of the, this great communist movement, and now we have these this, these disciples who are bring, who are bringing it. You know, promoting it. And yeah. Castro is the best, and I'm going to back him up. Yeah, yeah, and that also that also sticks it to Mao at that time, who very much so. Yeah. Mao, he was very very uh, troubled by the emerging hostility with China. Uh, you know what Mao calls Khrushchev? No, the no. running dog of American imperialism. <laughs> that, <laughs> that had to hurt. Yeah, <laughs> so. He wanted to prove to the world that he was tougher than Mao, that he was doing something, and Mao wasn't doing anything but opening his mouth. Uh, so who who, who uh, made the suggestion that we wait, I don't know how long, six months or whatever, to remove the missiles from Turkey and to keep it silent? Okay, that's a good question. When... Khrushchev agreed, uh, which was in the very early morning hours of Sunday the 28th. Uh, oh, God, I remember it so well. So, we were so scared. I'm a, a bit older than you when I was in my early 20s. And, I mean, the relief was so amazing. But anyway, uh, Bobby had made clear to Debrinen that this would, that this had to be kept secret. But when de Brinen brought Khrushchev's letter, he specifically referred to it, to the deal. And Bobby immediately brought it to his brother, and then he went back to de Brinen and said, this is unacceptable. We said it would be secret. We will take the missiles out in due time. Okay. I don't think there was a, an actual six-month okay. set. Okay. In due time. And they did, yeah. in a few months. Yeah. It made no difference. The missiles were then on the, uh, the you know, the submarines. Yeah. Uh, what was it? I can't remember the, the name of it. Uh, uh, it doesn't matter. But, the, you know, we were surrounding the Soviet Union with missiles on yeah. submarines. So a difference did it make. Sure. It, and, so, this, and the missiles were very, uh, very uh, um, open to being attacked. They were just sitting there. Right. And uh, Kennedy said several times, they're useless anyway. Why should we even risk going to war to protect a bunch of useless missiles? Yeah. It's crazy. You know, and he says it, it would be regarded, and this is his, these are his words, it would be regarded as a mad act on our part. Yeah, yeah. Did, so the, to go after those missiles, uh, I mean, it was asked at the beginning, how certain, I think Taylor was asked, how certain w- were you that you could get all the missiles, right, at the very beginning? Yes, and, t- and Taylor said no. Okay. Taylor was the one, he said we could possibly get 90% of them. Yeah. Which we now know was a wild exaggeration. Yeah. yeah. Because the missiles of the time, I mean, we even see this in much more recently, where uh, uh, Missiles of that kind, not necessarily even uh, nuclear. You know, there's tremendous collateral damage. They hit things they're not supposed to hit. Yeah, right. We see it going on in Ukraine. Yep, yep. Uh, if you believe the, I believe the Ukrainians, not rather than the Russians. Sure, sure, I do too. Uh, and uh, and uh, it, you know what? What guarantees are there? Uh, 
once you start using these things, and, and by the way, in a second meeting with some of the members of the Joint Chair, which was on the 29th, the day after the resolution of the crisis, Shoup, again, General Shoup says, well, we have to think of if they don't take them out, maybe we should consider using tactical loops to wow. take them out. Yeah. And Kennedy says, by this time, the tension is, is gone. I mean, it's very different. So they start out by talking about football. Believe me, I didn't talk about football, about the games taking place that weekend in college football. But uh, they didn't talk about things like that at the XCOM meetings, I can assure you. Uh, And then Kennedy says, no, 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 General, you can't use the tactical nukes. We can't use any nukes because once you use them, it can get out of control. Yeah, yeah, exactly. it gets out of control, what happens then? Uh, Uh, I mean, his reaction was exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, let me make one very important point. Sure. A friend of mine, unfortunately, who died a year ago, Martin Sherwin, mm-hmm. who's written a number of the won the Pulitzer Prize, his last book, which came out just a year before he died, uh, he uh, devoted some time in that book to talking about the education of the military. Mm-hmm. And it's very it's fascinating because he made the point that all the military people in that in those rooms in those meetings had gone to to the you know the Air Force Academy or the Naval Academy or West Point or whatever all before the nuclear era mm-hmm. they were all trained given their ages in probably in the 20s and 30s yeah yeah you know or maybe the troop was a little younger maybe in the 40s i don't know but certainly after nuclear weapons had been developed, and none of them had made the transition. They still thought in a pre-nuclear way. Yeah. Marty made that point. And it was especially brought home to me. I was having a discussion with, uh, remember I mentioned Dan Pham, the director of the library? Mm -hmm. He taught for many years at the Kennedy School. I told him what Marty had said. And he said, well, you know, it's so interesting, this. He said, I have a lot of military people in my classes at the Kennedy School. And he said, it's night and day. These guys are very sophisticated. Interesting. They're very well educated. They understand nuclear weapons. They understand all these questions. And they're not hawkish. Yeah, right, uh, right. So it wasn't because they were defective people. It was because they really... You see what I'm saying? They didn't, no, I mean, they didn't. It, it wasn't in their plausibility uh, world. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Sergei Khrushchev, though, I wonder that you knew Sergei Khrushchev, Khrushchev's son. Yes, I knew him fairly well. I was on two panels with him, what? and he was very helpful to me when I was writing, particularly the first book. Yeah, he and became I, an American I, citizen, right? Oh yeah, he taught for years at uh, Brown University. How? Uh, what did he contribute? which changes something of our understanding of this. Well, he wrote a book about it, just so you know. I can't remember the name of it, uh, but um, and it's certainly worth reading. Uh, but he, uh, he, he basically made clear, to me, the thing that I most remember, his description of on Saturday the 27th, the 13th of the 13 days, or the 12th, really, uh, uh, there was a... A cable was received from Castro saying, telling Khrushchev that he had to uh, 
nuke the United States. That's the only way to end the crisis. Wow. Khrushchev's response? Gets, yeah. Got about Are 10 seconds. Yeah, we've got 10 seconds. Okay. So, Khrushchev blows up. Khrushchev says, oh, that's so crazy. What's wrong with that man? 